play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Samin Nasrat. Samin is the author of the New York Times bestselling James Beard Award-winning book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And she's a food columnist for the New York Times Magazine. And those of us who have followed her writing and appearances on podcasts and online cooking videos were already very charmed by Samin. She laughs a lot. She's hyper curious. She brings new life and light to the very saturated food and cooking media world. But last year, Netflix released her four-part food and travel show, also called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And the rest of the country fell in love. And part of her likability is how down-to-earth she is, how relatable she is. I just made a joke in therapy about how I'll never be the person who buys like $10,000 pants. (laughs) Samin talks about growing up Iranian-American, her love of double carbs, a.k.a. spaghetti sandwiches, and her favorite Mexican restaurant, El Molino Central in California's Sonoma County. El Molino is owned by Karen Taylor. And I know people sort of can criticize this, but I wasn't born in Mexico and I wasn't raised by Mexican mothers, so... Karen and I will talk about how she strives to honor Mexican cuisine and how she makes her homemade tortillas so amazing. We're also going to talk about Persian food, a cuisine that's been getting a lot more attention in the United States these days. Bon Appetit magazine's senior editor, Andy Baragani, grew up in an Iranian household, but he spent his youth hiding his identity. It was an assignment at a food magazine that brought him back to his culture. It really forced me to kind of look at uh, my upbringing, the food that I ate, the food that I love so much, but never wanted to learn how to cook. I wanted to learn foods from French chefs. It was, that's what I thought was cool and hip and fancy. And we're gonna make a tadig, or rather rice with a tadig, something that I've been wanting to cook for about a year with the Caspian chef, Omid Ruste, a Persian cooking teacher in Seattle. So what role does rice play in Iranian culture? Ah. Rice is everything. I think uh, it all started with rice. But first, my conversation with Samin Nasrat. Samin's cooking career started at one of the country's most famous restaurants, Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California. It was opened in 1971 by Alice Waters, who was the original queen of the modern farm-to-table movement. Samin first learned about Chez Panisse at her freshman orientation in Berkeley, but she never really considered going. It was a fancy restaurant. And that wasn't the kind of place that her family would eat. And then my sophomore year, I I fell in love. And my boyfriend was from San Francisco. And he, we really spent a lot of our time together eating. And he was showing me all of his favorite ice cream and pizza and his favorite stuff from his childhood. And he had really always wanted to go to Chez Panisse. So we decided to save up. And we saved $220 over seven months to go eat there. And so we went for this dinner that was really amazing. And the dessert was a chocolate souffle and the server brought it over. And we were like pretty obviously sticking out like a sore thumb. You know, I was 19. I was wearing 
a black tank top and a denim skirt. Like that was my fancy outfit. (laughs) And so, (laughs) and so they, you know, they knew something was up with us. And so she said, Oh, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. And she said, would you like me to teach you how to eat it? And I said, sure. And she said, well, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and then you pour this sauce in. So every bite has sauce. So I did that. And she asked how it was. And I said, Oh, it's really good. But you know, what would be really good with this and make it even better is cold milk. (laughs) And she said, you want milk? And I was like, yeah. So she brought me milk. And then she also brought us each like a little sip of dessert wine to teach us the like refined accompaniment. And it was just this really sweet interaction. And, you know, at the time I had no idea like exactly how rude it is to tell somebody in a restaurant, like how they could make the thing better. (laughs) And also, and also the fact that, um, in, in fine dining, it's considered like milk is only for babies. So it was sort of this, like, I mean, not that I had anything to hide, but it was a total giveaway that I was a total novice. And so I was so inspired by that meal that I wrote a letter asking for a job. And when I brought it in, they said, Oh, you have to give that to the floor manager. And so when they brought me over to the office and she opened the door, it was the souffle lady. And she, she recognized me. I recognized her and she pretty much right away hired me and I started the next day. And that was the beginning of her culinary career. She started as a busser and worked her way up to a cook at Chez Panisse. Samine eventually moved on from restaurants and she started teaching private cooking classes, counting author Michael Pollan as one of her students. He taught her how to write. She taught him how to cook. And I will pretty much read, listen, watch anything that Samine is connected to. One of the things that I think people love about you and what I love about you watching you and reading your book is that, number one, you don't seem like a food snob, but you definitely embrace highs and lows. You like Mm -hmm. food at Chez Panisse, but you also like Oreos. And you've also managed to just really be yourself. Or as far as what we all know, seems like yourself. What if it it was all a sham? (laughs) Everyone kept telling me I was a natural and I didn't understand what that meant. I do have the strange capability to not change in front of a camera. And I didn't realize that that's unique, you know, (laughs) and apparently it is. I think a lot of people do get stiff. The wonderful thing about Netflix is that they recognize that from the first minute we met, everything that they did, every comment that they had was about creating circumstances that allowed me to be my true self. They never wanted me to be anything else. They never wanted me to dress fancy or you know, there, it was all just being me, which I'm so grateful for, because like in a world that has told me my whole life that I'm not okay as I am, that I, you know, that, that I don't measure up to standards of beauty or, or whatever, like to have this incredibly powerful sort of corporation coming and saying to me, just be you, that's good enough. And not only is it good enough, but it's great was really a powerful thing for me emotionally. Can you talk a little more about that? Did you feel those pressures growing up that you didn't totally fit in? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, I grew up in San Diego, which... um, was at the time a very, very segregated place. And the part that I ended up on was predominantly white. I was very much aware of looking different and being different and having a different name and eating different food. And I was also made to feel different, like on a daily basis by the people around me. And it's funny because now, you know, I'm so much older 
And I sometimes wonder, like, am I narrativizing this? Am I creating a story? And am I remembering it wrong? And what's funny is since the show came out, like all these people from my past are coming out of the woodwork. And so people are like posting pictures online of childhood things that we did together. And it's always like me and a whole bunch of blonde girls. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I did not remember it wrong. (laughs) And so it's not, you know, there's of course nothing wrong with being blonde or being white. And I have so many friends who are blonde and white and beautiful and wonderful. It's just that when an entire society and an entire culture is like sending signals constantly to all of us that there's one standard of beauty or one standard of normalcy or that one thing is the default and everything else is weird then like of course a little kid can't help but feel excluded and feel different and so growing up eating your mom's food eating persian food what was your school lunch like what would she pack for you um, well, sometimes we I had Persian leftovers or there are certain Persian dishes that like make a great sandwich, you know? There's something we have called kotlet, which is kind of like a little mini meatloaf or something, you know, like a little patty. And so that would make a great sandwich with pickles and mayonnaise. And my mom would stick it in a pita pocket or um, cuckoo sabzi, which is sort of a herb, herb and greens rich frittata. And I'd get a cuckoo sandwich. Um, or sometimes one of my favorites was like, she would make Persian pasta, which all Persians make this one type of pasta. I think that that's what they, th- and it's called macaroni. <laughs> and so, and so this is like the pasta I grew up eating was this very specific flavor of like beef. It was a beef and tomato sauce with mushrooms and, or a lot of oregano. And it, I mean, it was super good, but only like when I became a cook and moved to Italy, did I realize like, it has nothing to do with Italy. <laughs> you never find a sauce like that in Italy. It's very, very particularly Iranian. So my mom would make macaroni and then she would give us this incredible double carb lunch of like pita pockets filled with macaroni. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we called them spaghetti sandwiches. They were so good. Well, what's interesting, I feel like you hear a lot of kids who have foreign parents, myself included, you know, just wanting to fit in and like, oh, I just wish I could have a white bread sandwich with a craft single in it. But it sounds like you really embraced the lunches that your mom was making you. I mean, I totally did. Don't get me wrong. But like I had a friend I remember in like third or fourth grade and we would walk to school together. And her mom always made her like Wonder Bread PBJs that also she was like stick thin. I think her mom was trying to get her to gain weight. So her mom would put margarine and peanut butter and jelly in the sandwich. And then she would also get like a bag of Cheez-Its and a bag of Oreos. And for whatever reason, she hated Oreos. And I just like I would have done anything for an Oreo. So my friend would like take her bag of Oreos and throw them in a bush every day on the way to school. And I was like, is it the same bush? Like if I went in there, would there be like 100 bags of Oreos? (laughs) And I still have like an irrational irrational sort of fascination with like things like craft singles or macaroni and cheese or sort of like all of the trashy things that are, that are probably like most American kids grow up with to me they seem like exotic and <laughs> and fascinating and I have like strange cravings for them so like I'll always be like give me the Hidden Valley Ranch you know <laughs> <laughs> me too me too I am so with you Will Samin's last meal be a craft single Oreo sandwich? Will it be a Persian dish she grew up eating around her family table? You only have to wait about a minute to find out. Or you could check out the title of the episode. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We'll be right back. 
If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Samin, what would your last meal be? Mexican food. (laughs) <laughs> I sometimes say roast chicken, but I'm like, let's be real. I love Mexican food so much. Yeah. <laughs> you have to. You grew up in San Diego. Totally. <laughs> what specifically, what Mexican food um, if you had to oh, choose? God, that's always changing. But um, there is a restaurant in Sonoma that's called El Molino Central that is so delicious. It's a little tiny taqueria. It doesn't look anything special from the roadside, but they do so many special things inside, including they, they grind and nixtamalize their own corn, which is the process that like corn goes through to turn from, from corn kernels into the corn that we eat in tortillas and tortilla chips. They do that themselves. And so it means that all of their corn items, their tortillas, their tortilla chips, and their tamales have the most sweet, corny flavor. I would probably get really hungry before my last meal and then go there and eat one of everything. They have the most incredible fish tacos. They have the sweetest tamales I really love there because there's not too much masa on the outside. They're not too dry. They're super tender and the filling's really delicious. They have this incredible dip from the Yucatan that's called sikil pak that I kind of describe as like a pumpkin seed hummus or something. It's made with pumpkin seeds and tomatoes and garlic and it's so creamy and that I love dipping chips in. And I would honestly eat one of everything. At El Molino is my last meal. (laughs) (laughs) When I called Karen Taylor, the owner of El Molino Central, and told her that Samin wants her last meal at her restaurant, Karen was beyond thrilled. She's a fan, aren't we all? El Molino Central is in Boys Hot Springs in Sonoma County, in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. El Molino translates to the mill, and El Molino Central mills or grinds its own corn. 
something Karen started doing more than 25 years ago when she started her tamale company, Primavera. We wanted to have organic tortillas and there wasn't any dehydrated corn maseca available that was organic and we wanted to be in the Berkeley farmer's market. So I found a guy that was selling a 15 horsepower grinder in Santa Rosa and we bought it. Describe the process. A lot of people just buy tortillas in the store and they don't know that there's a special process that the corn goes through to turn the corn into masa. Um, so talk about the, the grinding and then the nixtamal, nixt, how do you say, nixtamalization process? Nixtamalization, yeah. Nixtamalization. <laughs> um, well, it starts with dried corn, like that looks like popcorn or, or hominy, and then you soak it in water and cal or lime, which is calcium hydroxide, and heat it for a little while, half hour or whatever, and then let it soak overnight. And the lime penetrates the the corn and it makes it also more nutritional, but it inflates and then you wash it and grind it in stone grinders with water. So it's always a wet grind like cookie dough. This word is so hard for me. Nixtamalization is an ancient, I did it. Nixtamalization is an ancient process dating back to about 1500 BC in Mesoamerica. And as you would imagine, freshly grinding and nixtamalizing your own corn is way tastier than buying packaged tortillas or masa. Karen is currently using Macienda corn, which is an heirloom variety from Oaxaca. And the best part is that the neighborhood people can come and buy their masa from us. In Mexico, all these villages have a sort of central molino where they bring their corn and the molinero grinds the corn and they can um, ask them to grind it how they like it. They can always buy tortillas and masa, so it's worked out in that way too. And then it kind of became busier and busier and more of a restaurant. So you've created a community hub similar to what exists in Mexico. I think so, as best we can. Everything's very reasonably priced. The mazas dirt cheap. The tortillas are as well. And I think people are excited to see the blue tortillas. It's all worked out. <laughs> Karen has a big staff of cooks, mostly Mexican women who have stuck with her for more than 20 years. I see a couple of names on your menu, like Zoraida's mother's Oaxacan red mole chicken enchiladas. And I see, where's the other one? Oh, Rufina's pork tamales. Are these a couple of the women who work for you? Yes. Uh-huh. Zoraida. Um, she's kind of a kitchen manager during the day. She and her sister, Alfonsina, and another sister that has since gone back to Mexico, Katarina, all three of those I've been really lucky to have. And they kind of, they really don't want anyone to help them make the mole. And sometimes I insist, like, I want to do Patricia Quintana's mole because I like it. It has prunes in it and things like that. Um, but they like to make their own mole and they can make black mole. They're so good at it. I don't need to get in the middle of that. That's for sure. Karen is not Mexican, but she got her start cooking Mexican food in a restaurant in Mexico more than 30 years ago. And she spent a lot of time there. She tries to honor the Oaxacan and Yucatan dishes El Molino serves, and she doesn't do her own spin on them. But of course, people still like to criticize. How does it make you feel and does it bother you when people do criticize you for making food from a country that you're not from? You know, I it's it's funny that it's coming up a lot lately rather than 
a long time ago at this late date. I've been doing it for so long. You have to be careful about your criticism. There's no criticism for someone that is buying El Pato sauce and grilling carne asada. And um, there's a lot of Mexican restaurants around that I wouldn't say they necessarily honor the cuisine of Mexico. You know, it's a world-class cuisine now, luckily. People are interested and they want to do it. So I don't claim to be an expert on Mexico, Mexican cooking, but, you know, we've done a pretty good job with a lot of sincere effort. There's people doing all kinds of cuisine, and in this country we don't have an indigenous cuisine. You know, I'm not claiming anything. I'm just trying to do a good job by it. El Molino Central is in Northern California. And if you're a member of the official society of California burrito snobs and know-it-alls, like I am, we're fun at parties, you'll know that there are different styles of Mexican food in different parts of California. So San Francisco is famous for the mission-style burrito. San Diego has the California burrito, which is stuffed with carne asada and crinkle-cut fries. My favorite burritos come from my college town up in Chico, and L.A. has its own thing going on, too. You live in the Bay Area, but you're from San Diego. What is your loyalty? I know. What do I do? It's so complicated. I mean, technically, I've spent more years of my life up here. But I recently realized that my favorite burrito up here is from a place called La Taqueria. They don't put rice in their burrito. They only have beans and meat and like other toppings, which I realized is basically a Southern California burrito because Southern Californians don't put rice in the burrito. So I think if like you cut me open, the burrito you would find in my heart (laughs) is a Southern Californian burrito. (laughs) You're really going against your Iranian upbringing, though. No rice. I know. Well, maybe I'm like the rest of me is all right, is all Persian rice. (laughs) (laughs) Also in San Diego, which they don't do up north, I find that the burritos always come in that yellow paper as opposed yes. to foil. Yes, yes. That, I have a whole, I have a friend from San Diego who went to college up here and he was really, really angry about the foil. He was like, if you, if there's foil, it's not Southern Californian. I really love the paper. I don't know what, I mean, it's colorful. It's delightful. I'm really into the paper. Plus like anytime if you accidentally like wrap, unwrap your burrito and you you don't get all the foil off and then you like have a little piece of foil in your teeth, yeah. that's not pleasant. <laughs> but I think that the Northern California burritos are bigger. And so the foil contains them because you just need That's to true. hold them in. You yes, unwrap it from the top. Very, very important. <laughs> it is because it makes it so nice and dense. And like the paper's just there for decoration. I feel like it doesn't like hold it together. I Yeah, I'm with you. I think the flour tortillas in, in the South are better, though. Yes. And I think and I am I, I don't care how rude it is. Like I <laughs> love a flour tortilla, even if it's not cool. They're just so delicious. They're so good. Like Samin said, her heart is filled with Mexican food and the rest of her body is Persian rice. And we've already covered the Mexican food. So when we come back, we're going to talk about Persian rice and the crispy coveted layer called Tadig. We'll be right back. Oh, hi, guys. Before we get back to the episode, Samin and I were talking earlier about NorCal burritos versus SoCal burritos. And I wanted to let you know that we have a whole episode focusing entirely on the history of the burrito. You got to go way, way back to a very early episode featuring the last meal of former child actor and current writer Mara Wilson. San Francisco style mission burritos 
or something having to do with matzo ball soup. Samin's favorite San Francisco burrito is from La Taqueria, which was declared the best burrito in the country by a burrito bracket done by 538. The reason La Taqueria won to me is that it has this sort of miraculous first bite. It's incredibly juicy and delicious and packed with flavor. And it's sort of like a food epiphany the first time you have it. So if you love burritos as much as I do, First of all, go get yourself one and then scroll back and listen to the Mara Wilson episode. All right, back to the show. Samin's parents are from Iran. And growing up in San Diego, her family almost exclusively ate Persian food at home. Persian food centers around rice. But there's a particular part of a rice dish that people actually fight over. That is called... The tadig. What is tadig? A literal translation of tadig is bottom of the pot. That's Omid Ruste. He calls himself the Caspian chef and he teaches Persian cooking classes in Seattle. And Omid is going to teach me how to make a tadig. Tadig is the crispy crust that forms on the bottom of the pot of rice. Now it is an irresistible, ultra-coveted treat. But it started as an accident. If you've ever scorched the bottom of a pot of rice, uh, you know that it gets nice and crispy, but maybe not in a good way. But Iranians have since perfected it. And the simplest way to make Persian rice is to put water, basmati rice, and fat, like butter or oil, into a pot and let it cook. The fat and the heat will create the tadig. But since we were going to be cooking in the studio, Omid brought in a special rice cooker. You said that this is a special Persian rice cooker? Yes, this is not just a rice cooker. This is a Persian rice cooker. What's unique about this one is it has temperature dials where it actually cooks at a higher temperature to create the crispy bit on the bottom. First, he measures out some water into the pot. Put the water in the pot, put the lid on so that obviously it'll come up to a boil faster. And then he rinses the rice. Get some of the natural starch off of the rice. And do you do it till it runs clear? Yeah, just two, three rinses. Um, and I don't get too fanatic about it, but just a couple of rinses, you get some of that starch out. Then he adds a big chunk of butter to the pot. Keep in mind that the adequate fat is what's needed to make the tadig as crispy as it is. So if you want it to be rich and crispy and reasonably fried, you need the fat in there. So the fat not only uh, coats around the grain and it prevents it from sticking together, but it also settles down to the bottom. And that is the crispy bit that we all love so much. Salt goes in, saffron goes in, and Omid puts a thin dish towel under the lid of the pot to catch the condensation. He says that's what's going to create really fluffy rice. And I actually tried this a few weeks ago from another recipe. It was honestly the best pot of rice I had ever made. It eliminated kind of the extra starchiness and any of the stickiness that I'd experienced in the past. So any kind of rice, I would advise putting this towel under, unless I guess you want like really sticky Thai rice. Uh, but anyway, the rice then cooks for about 45 minutes. Okay, so we're going to take the top off. It's done. Oh, you can really tell just looking at the top surface that how the rice is just light and fluffy. And the aroma of the saffron that we put on top, and of course the little bit of butter that went in helped quite a bit. If your rice is clumpy, that is the curse of your family system. So if you're planning on getting married, you can kiss that idea goodbye if you serve clumpy rice to your guests. So let's flip the rice out and see what the tadik looks like. Now, the moment of truth, and I think every time I make rice, 
you're just going to get what you're going to get. Yeah. And it's and it's always good, but it will look a different shade. So It's a go. metaphor for life. That's right. So here we go. Look at her. Here we go. She so looks we go. good. There I'm just going to touch it. Yes. I'm going to go get us some spoons. The rice was intensely buttery, super fluffy. There was not a single grain stuck together. And if you're like me and you're used to eating a lot of Asian rice, like Thai rice or Japanese rice, sushi rice, this is a very different experience. Omid tells the story of when he first came to the U.S., he was taken to a Chinese restaurant and he was appalled by the rice because it was all stuck together and it's supposed to. But in his culture, sticky rice is a disgrace. You heard him. You won't be able to get married if your rice sticks together. Anyway, back to our rice. It was the first time that I got to try tadig, and it was crusty and crispy and tinged yellow-orange by the saffron. So delicious. When you're talking about people, food, the culture, when do you use Iranian and when do you use Persian? Ah, that's a great question, and I get asked that a lot. And I don't know if it's universally understood that way or not, but I think of my ancestry, my heritage as being Persian, and my country of origin and citizenship being Iran. So I am Iranian, as in I was born in Iran, and I am Persian, as in my ancestry is Persian. So that's that's how I differentiate it. What about for the food? Would you say Persian food? Ah, for the Persian food, uh, I have used it interchangeably. You know, some of the classes that I teach, sometimes I call it flavors of Persia. Sometimes I call it flavors of Iran. I th- so yeah. neither is culturally insulting? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. Not at all. Phew. (laughs) We're good. Yeah, we're good. Good, good. (laughs) Omid's parents sent him to the United States after the Iranian Revolution when he was just 16 years old. He arrived by himself and was sent to boarding school. And he thought that he could speak English. He studied before he came to the U.S. But when a kid asked him, what's up? He literally looked up at the sky. People were constantly asking him, what? They couldn't understand what he was saying. They couldn't hear through his accent. And even though he hardly has an accent today, that is something that still triggers him. Omid is a therapist, but he also teaches Persian cooking classes. When you came in, one of the first things you said is that you're really trying to get people in this country to learn about Persian cuisine. Why is it so important to you? Uh, I think Iran and Iranians are quite misunderstood these days, and I think food is a tremendous opportunity in a way where we get to connect and really bust a lot of myths that we have about who those other people are. For me personally, I was truly moved as I recognize how misunderstood we are as a nation. A couple of years ago, I decided uh, to come out of a pseudo-retirement from my cooking classes and re-engage teaching cooking classes because it felt like I could tell people about Iran in a very loving and gentle and connecting way. So, And people are hungry for good food. And so the movement toward recognizing and appreciating different cultures through food, I think it is a brilliant move. Samin and Bon Appetit's Andy Baragani are two Iranian-Americans who have helped get Persian food into the minds and magazines of Americans. I love it. I couldn't be happier. Um, I am actually going to go see Samin myself when she comes to Seattle. (laughs) Yes, I am such a fan. And as I was sharing with you earlier, like the whole video of Andy flipping the, the, the tadig and rice over and showing it and there's such a pride in, in the care that we put in toward our food. And again, it's another way of where we are normalizing and humanizing each other through the love of food and what truly we have all in common. 
Andy Baragani is a senior food editor for Bon Appetit magazine. And I must say, the magazine has done an amazing job of using videos and their podcasts to present their writers and test kitchen cooks as a cast of vibrant, knowledgeable characters to help readers make a connection. And it worked. I love Claire Saffitz. I love Andy Baragani. Also, hi, Adam Rappaport. I think you're cool, too. Anyway, Andy is fairly soft-spoken, he's detail-oriented, and the recipes that I have cooked are all delicious. And like Samin, he got his start working at Chez Panisse. He grew up in Berkeley. She lives there now. Last year, Andy wrote a very poignant and beautifully written piece for the magazine titled, I Hid Who I Was For So Long Until I Became A Cook. It's an article about how he didn't want to reveal his sexuality or his ethnicity to anybody. Samin, Omid, and Andy have more than a love for cooking and food in common. They're all Iranian-Americans who grew up feeling like outsiders. Like Samin, Andy's lunches were packed with Persian food. But he wasn't excited to pull a cuckoo sandwich from his lunch bag. When you're at that age, you really just want to fit in as best you can. So I think... I just tried to kind of avoid conversation or really what eventually happened was I just stopped taking lunch to school. It was easier for me to just like not take lunch and avoid the kind of conversation or I mean, I just remember days I wouldn't even eat just because I didn't want to didn't want to bring lunch from from home. Andy also didn't feel comfortable with his name. My full name is Andy Sheh. Andy Shebaragani. And that is a hard name to pronounce for most people. So I took the liberty of kind of shortening it to Andy when I transferred school districts and I didn't know anybody and I don't want people to ask me about that name. And um, I was very quick to cut the teacher off when they were kind of reading the names from the from the roster. And uh, I would just say, oh, Andy, Andy's fine. My last name, the Correct pronunciation, which is also very difficult to uh, say, is Baragani. The G-H makes the G sound, which is actually very hard to uh, pronounce if you don't speak Farsi. And I kind of just started saying Baragani, so Annie Baragani. And so Baragani kind of sounded Italian to me. And so I kind of didn't started saying that I was Italian, which is not true. And I don't know why, but I purchased a shirt uh, as a teenager that said Italian stallion, which (laughs) the same thing about just fitting in. And sometimes you go to these great lengths, these ridiculous lengths to fit in and blend in. And eventually it gets to you if if you're lying to others and you're lying to yourself. So I think it was consuming me in a way that just was... um, was not healthy. Like Omid, it was Persian food that brought him back around to loving his roots. So I was an intern for Sever in 2010, a food magazine, and I was working in the test kitchen. I had left and then they contacted me. They said they were going to do a feature story on Iran. I thought that was ridiculous just because I never thought that would be happening. And just with tensions between the U.S. and Iran, it just didn't make a lot of sense. So the story did end up happening, and Anissa Halu reported the story. And originally, the recipes were going to be coming from Iran and transcribed and then just tested in the test kitchen. Uh, But that changed, and Todd uh, and James asked me to adapt the recipes for my mother. That was something that I was kind of shocked by, but open to, and... It was a lot more work than I think I 
I, I thought, just because it's not like my mother has these recipes written down. And so it was a lot of hours and days of speaking to her and, and try, transcribing her, her pinches and handfuls uh, into actual measurements. It was about eight or ten of the final recipes were my mother's. And it was, I think, a great feeling for everybody involved. And that kind of sets you on the path of like, oh, this isn't something I have to be embarrassed about. Yes. I think once the story came out and then uh, I kind of realized there was definitely this interest in this food, uh, that's when I started to just continue cooking that food and really have continued since then. Like we mentioned earlier, Samin grew up eating Persian food at home. But that is not her culinary area of expertise. She learned to make perfect pasta while living and apprenticing in Italy. She cooked seasonal California cuisine at Chez Panisse. And the other day I watched this video on Munchies of her making the world's fanciest and most delicious looking tuna sandwich. Like you think tuna sandwich? This is not that. She starts with tuna steaks and she uses olive oil and aromatics to make a tuna confit. She makes homemade mayonnaise. She makes an olive tapenade that she mixes into the mayonnaise. She does pickled onions. The whole thing looks insane. You said that your mom is an amazing cook, was an amazing cook when you grew up, and now you're famous for cooking and being a cook. What's it like to be in the kitchen with your mom? What is her <laughs> attitude? Like, wh- how do you guys cook together? Does she look to you as still like a little girl, or do you get to yes. be an expert? No, 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 no. I defer to her because also she's an expert in something that I'm not. She's an expert in Persian food. And anytime I need to learn something about any particular dish, I call her. <laughs> I learned a long time ago. I remember one of the first times after I started cooking, I went home to visit my family and I was so excited to make something for everyone. And I I think at that time, I was really into chicken pot pie, which was some American (laughs) thing that I had never had before, you know, so I really wanted to make that. And I had learned how to make like gravy and I was really into making biscuits. And so I made this pot pie with like biscuits in it and we invited my grandparents and everyone came over and like, Everyone was confused, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, it was, I'm sure a really good chicken pot pie, but it was just not what anyone in my family considered to be dinner. And so (laughs) did they eat it? Yeah, yeah, they totally ate it. I think they like pretended to like be really polite about it. But it was sort of I got enough subliminal messages that day to know that like, my job when I go home is not to cook, it's to eat, which I'm happy to oblige my mom. So I don't think the kitchen is going to be the place where we're going to like, really find ourselves together. (laughs) (laughs) What's one of your favorite things that your mom cooks? She is a master of Persian rice. And I think one of my favorite dishes, one that I'm really craving, and I'll be excited to eat the next time I see her is called, um, Bagali polo, and it's it's a springtime dish. It's like a dilly rice with fava beans in it. A lot of the times, the some of the fava beans will sort of sink to the bottom of the pot and embed themselves in the crispy tadig, the crispy rice at the bottom, and that's usually served with with lamb, with um, simmered with saffron and onions, and it's 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 just such. Oh, it's so I think I'm really into double starches is what I'm coming to here, like bean and rice burritos or just bean burritos, spaghetti sandwiches, fava bean rice. <laughs> you need a tadig taco. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Samin Nasrat's last meal. Samin will be in Seattle if you happen to live here at Benaroya Hall on Sunday, March 10th, in conversation with the Seattle Times food writer Bethany Jean Clement. 
I'll be there. Come say hello. She'll also be in Portland the next day, March 11th. Pick up her book, which completely sold out around the holidays. You literally could not get it anywhere, but you can get it now. Or watch her Netflix special. It's so, so good. I've watched it all the way through twice. Both are called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Thanks to Karen Taylor, owner of El Molino Central and Primavera Tamales in Sonoma. Thanks so much to Omid Ruste. This guy is one of the most genuine, sweet, interesting people you will ever meet. If you are at all interested in learning Persian cooking, which I definitely am, and you happen to be in the Seattle area, take one of his cooking classes. You can find him at thecaspianchef.com. A thank you to Andy Baragani, Bon Appetit Magazine's senior editor. You can follow me on Instagram. Check out the newest issue of Bon Appetit. We just launched a Bon Appetit channel on uh, Roku or Apple TV. So we have our own channel now. So you are able to kind of watch all our videos in the comfort of your own living room. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, theme music by Prom Queen. Follow me on Instagram at Your Last Meal Podcast and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to get the show out to new people and it's good for our self-esteem. I'm Rachel Bell and this is Your Last Meal. Your Last Meal.